Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... What we wanted to do with the brand is we wanted to have something, before you even know what we did, it puts a smile on your face. And we wanted to play to the nostalgia of the piggy bank for the parent, but we also wanted to be fun and energetic for the kids. Who turns down a guaranteed job with the big tech players in Silicon Valley to do their own thing back home in Oz? Well, young fintech entrepreneur Alex Badron, for one, sounds crazy, right? But Alex Badron did just that. Alex completed a fellowship in Silicon Valley, California, for technology PhD students that basically involved him helping the likes of Netflix, Facebook, LinkedIn, Airbnb to solve their deep technical problems. Meanwhile, hanging out with their founders and senior execs, scooping up whatever experience and learnings that he could with the idea that you would stay on and work for one of these global behemoths in the US. But Alex Badron wasn't having that, always intending to return home to Sydney to realise his startup journey. He and a mate, Mario Hassanakis, had a dream to build something substantial from scratch. And he couldn't let that go, even if it was Facebook calling. The pair created and founded technology company Spriggy in 2015 in Sydney. It's a platform they call a financial education tool. In short, it's a pocket money app for kids, all with parental supervision. And Spriggy attracted investors like Mike Cannon Brooks's family fund, Grok Ventures, from the get-go. And to date, Alex and Mario have successfully raised around $50 million from investors who believe in Spriggy and, more importantly, believe in its founders. Alex Badron, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Helen. Well, now, you founded Spriggy some seven or eight years ago, which is very new, really. It's a financial app that you say helps children manage their pocket money and learn about money with parental supervision. So what exactly is it and how does it work? That's right, Helen. It's a a product that helps parents teach their kids about money through real-world experiences. So parents sign up online. There's an app they use to pay their kids' pocket money teach them about earning through chores around the house, saving, and kids can spend their own money. So kids get a prepaid card in their own name and they also have access to the app. So they have an account through an app and they have access to a card, which is basically what a debit visa card. It's a prepaid card and it's accepted anywhere that visa is accepted. So online and in store. So kids get their own pocket money and they get to spend it wherever they choose and learn through good decisions and bad decisions through real world experiences. So you're not a bank. And you're not owned by a bank, as I understand. Is that right? That's right. We are a we're an independent technology company. Right. So if parents put, say, a hundred bucks on the card for pocket money or payment for jobs done, it's not protected in the same way that normal deposits in banks are protected by the federal government. That's right. There's a scheme for authorized deposit taking institutes for bank accounts. 
where you're protected up to $250,000. Uh, we prepaid cards do not fall under that regime. Right. So it's a savings way or account, but you don't offer any interest. At this stage, yes. So it's typically low value balances that we yeah. have on the product where kids aren't receiving the same amount of money as adults. Uh, and, and the value in the product is that parents get to give their kids pocket money uh, in the language that they are spending and receiving money and, and they're in, engaging with the world, kids get to make their own decisions um, through spending on what they want, saving for what they want to save for, and they learn through those experiences as there are consequences to their actions. So they get paid a certain amount of pocket money a week. Um, if they spend that all, it's gone. Yeah, um, if they want to, but save they can up for sort something. of see it in their own. So I'll just play devil's advocate for a minute because I do think it's a fantastic idea. Why wouldn't a parent just say, oh, I'll go down to the Commonwealth Bank and open a bank account for X child who still might be under the age of 15, 16? And that, that's a good point. And that's a point back in the early days when we were when we proposed the, the concept, um, a lot of people gave us pushback, which is why would I do use your product when I can go to a bank, I can open up a bank account, I can have it attached to my bank account, I can then come up with a spreadsheet where I keep track of all the chores and I put something on the fridge where there's a, a chore chart on the fridge. I can then talk to the kids every night across the bank account. I can open up my net banking. They can look at it. They can then look at the spreadsheet. They can then look at the chores on the fridge. And I'm like, you've just described why we should have a product. That's not a convenient experience. It's not, it's not in the language that's uh, native to the kids. Our product is really simple. Parents sign up online. It takes less than two minutes. Uh, kids get their own card in their own name which is really important. So they have agency over their own saving and spending decisions. There's an app which parents and kids can use together, which encapsulates all those fractured moments that are taking place conversationally or in and around products around the house. And also they they use their phone all the time, or they certainly will use their phone all the time. You know, the children generation obviously are going to use the digital uh, economy, uh, digital devices much more and more and more. Yeah, that's right. And when we started, it was, um, it was many years ago, as, as you mentioned, uh, one of the core theses, one of the core assumptions was that payments are go going to become more digital. Um, we're going to transition further away from physical cash and payments are going to become more and more online. Um, and that's what we've seen take place. And given whether we like it or not, that's where the world's going. And we need to have a a tool, a product, and a language in which parents can use that to teach their kids, um, and that's kind of the space we play in. Just on that aspect, do you think COVID actually sort of exacerbated or, or accelerated the move to no cash? I mean, parents don't have dollars on them to give to give kids for pocket money. Yeah, absolutely, and like we we could see it. We we've got a, a large a large member base across Australia, and we can see the the shift in transactions taking place. It, Places like Woolworths and Coles stopped accepting cash. It became it became dirty in that period. And while there's, there's a lot of benefit to having tangible learning experiences with physical cash, uh, but the reality is, if if Woolworths and Coles aren't accepting it, which is the, some of the largest places where kids are spending, um, it's just impractical. And you need to have a tool that helps kids have agency over their own money, but also learn about the consequences of buying the wrong thing or wanting to save for something in a real world context. You say that it's accepted as a card and they can spend it, the kids can spend it anywhere that Visa's accepted. How do you guarantee or can you guarantee that they don't spend it in inappropriate places or on inappropriate things? As part of our program, we, we restrict merchants uh, that are not child appropriate. So you know, gambling and alcohol, for example, the cards aren't accepted there. 
Right, so no online gambling. They wouldn't be able to spend it on that. No, not right. The way it works is merchants have category codes, and if you fall into a certain category, we, we exempt those. So it's done at a kind of a scheme-wide level. Um, but the idea is, you know, this is a product designed for, for kids under the age of 18, uh, and they shouldn't be buying alcohol or gambling online, and that's the product is designed around that. Um, what I would say, though, is... Um, we provide a tool for parents, and we try to make that tool as safe and practical as possible. Uh, we can't solve all the problems that come with parenting, unfortunately. If we did, we'd be, we'd be very successful. <laughs> You'd be even um, richer. <laughs> so uh, what we what we what we say is we try to create a safe and safe environment for parents to manage their kids' money and to educate their kids and to give them agency over their own. Uh, decisions. Um, but that being said, kids are still kids. It's the world's chaotic out there and parents still need to parent. Uh, we yeah. haven't solved all those problems yet. Where did the idea come from for a kid's pocket money app? Where did that spring from? Well, w- when we started, we were, we were myself and my co-founder were looking at kind of the world of finance and the world of technology, which were both, the, 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 the worlds that are interesting to us were finance, technology, and education. And we're like, where's the world going? Um, we strongly believe that cash was going to become more and more digitalized, uh, that you learn through real world experiences and learning about money is important. It's important to setting yourself up for having a happy and healthy life. Um, and we we believed that looking at the world of finance, that more and more technology companies will be playing in the space. And those that focus on building experiences that are centered around customer pain points will be more relevant as technology plays a bigger role in finance. And so we was, that, that was the core kind of what thesis. do you mean by that, those that are focused on the customer pain points? Well, if, if you look at finance, you've got a pretty simple range of products. You've got deposit accounts, you've got credit cards, you've got home loans. And typically, if you look at the way the industry's evolved, you've got a range of products that you're trying to sell to a mass market. So you're looking at a deposit account that goes to a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old. These are all the same product and we're distributing those out in market. And the way you reach certain customers is really a marketing exercise which is built around life cycle events. Um, and so we yeah. we flipped it on its head, which is like, you know, we don't offer bank accounts to parents and kids. We build products that solve problems that arise within a family related to money. And as part of that solution, we use prepaid cards. Um, so how can we help parents solve a parenting problem, which is really behavioral? There's a behavioral element of how do I how do I manage money with my kids? Like they keep asking me for $5 for something. I keep giving it to them. They're playing Xbox. How do I manage that? How do I turn those kind of moments into educational experiences? There are behavioral, not just around finance, but how do I reward good behavior and encourage yeah. and disincentivize bad behavior? How do I have those conversations? So we, our product is a parenting tool. So it's an education tool, really, also exactly. to yeah. teach children that there is no money tree out the backyard. Exactly. Um, and and um, what we've seen is like, you know, parents order the card and they're like, look, the, the product and they say, look, we'll put it up on the top shelf. Um, you'll get it in a few weeks time if you're, if you're well behaved. And then we've heard stories of kids doing the bed, you know, starting to do their chores. It's it's It plays in the behavioral space within a household. It's not simply a an account with a balance that moves money around. That is a f- core piece which f- fuels the product, but it, it lives in a, in a bigger space within a household. And, and the more products, not just ours, but that can find it really targeted under, and understand a customer segment and understand what pain points they have within that segment and solve real problems for real people as opposed to businesses that take solutions and try 
ship those solutions to as many people as possible. We believe that former category is where you'll play and win and, and we wanted to focus on education problems. My co-founder is a physicist and I'm from a maths background. So That's Mario? Mario. Mario Hasanakis. He's a physicist. He's, yeah, right. he's a physicist. So we, and you're a mathematician. Yeah. And so we're very problem-obsessed, almost science backgrounds, um, solution agnostic people. So we, we kind of focus really since the beginning, even till now, like what are the problems we're trying to solve um, and really understand those. And then we're kind of agnostic to how we solve those. Mm. Uh, and I think if you look at any business, you've got a marketing department, a product department, you've got a design department, the customer doesn't care. They just have they have problems and they have an experience from the first conversation they have with your company or the first time they hear about you, all the way through to when they're using your product happily, hopefully. And they don't care if it's the designer who makes that experience or the, the engineer or the, the marketing team. They care that the messaging you give them and the conversations that you have are relevant and they solve problems at the right point in time. And I think that if we we view our business as a vehicle to discover customer problems that are aligned to you know the mission that we're trying to achieve uh, and solve those in an effective way for our customers and, and the how, that's all in the details. You were both, Mario, and you were both working in finance. You were in investment banking at the time. Is that right? We were. I was. I was finishing my PhD, so I was working. I was working on a trading floor while finishing my maths PhD, and Mario was on the same trading floor. We actually weren't. We didn't really know each other until I quit, and he was like, "Oh, that guy quit." And we ended up having a conversation. He's like, "I'm going to quit too," and then we ended up kind of getting to know each other quite well and starting a business together. Uh, but we both worked. That's kind of how we met. We were introduced by a mutual friend on the trading floor. Oh, how interesting yeah. when you both decided to leave that that big job. So the trading floor, you were a derivatives trader at an investment bank. Is I was, that right? I was working on the interest rate trading desk, uh, which has a lot of derivatives and a lot of products. I was doing that while finishing kind of my academia. Yes. And uh, I, I, I found that I just spent many years solving math problems, which are quite removed from people. They're very abstract and they're, I think that process I found quite quite isolating. Um, you know, I've written a thesis which not many people are going to read or engage with. And then I went from that role into a role where I was looking at very focused, very narrow problem space where you're looking at products that I think there are a lot of mathematical complexities and it's very interesting, um, but I found it was very removed from people. It was very isolated. It was another isolating and role, which is very specialised. Mm. Uh, and this was making money in tiny little sort of areas of interest rate movements. Well, the bank, yeah. So the bank would uh, trade lots of different interest rate products to, but they'd sell products and then you'd manage the risk that came yeah. with selling those products. And it was, it was trading interest rate products to ensure that the risk is managed appropriately. And that like, it's a really important role. People need to do it. I, I found that personally for me, after having been very specialised for a long period of time, I was eager to do something different yeah. that came with a bit more purpose for myself. Okay. So you you quit your job with Spriggy in mind or was there another product in the interim? No, I just quit. I was um I was pretty burnt out. I was doing two at two things at once. I quit doing your PhD um, and doing this big job. Yeah, and and I said I said to my boss at the time, I was like, look, I'm not I'm not at my best. I'm not enjoying the role. I'm pretty knackered. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I know that if I'm going to be good at it, I need to be fresh. And there's an interesting world out there. There's many different problems to solve. I kind of back myself. I've I've solved. I've been good at solving problems that were presented to me. There's an interesting world out there. I back myself to find problems and solve them. And if not, please give me a job back. 
I, yeah, and he was, I think he thought I was mad at the time. I think he still kind of does. Um, but I quit with no real plan just to take a break, freshen up, get excited again. I think for me, if you're excited about what you do, it's a really powerful force. And for, I've always been at my best when I, when I wake up in the morning, kind of passionate about kind of tackling a problem. And I didn't have that at the time. And I, um, I felt as though whatever I do next, I, necess- I needed to have that back to be good at what I do. And so I took a break. I traveled with some friends. I kind of got a bit of perspective and then um, ended up uh, – I, I, took, I took some time out. I ended up doing a fellowship in Silicon Valley, um, which was, was about a three-month fellowship where uh, technical PhDs from around the world would go and learn a bunch of – things about how data science works in Silicon Valley, and they'd pair up with companies and learn about um, the problems that each company would have. Uh, Fantastic. So, so I did that. and that So was, was that through the university or is it a, a thing offered by Silicon Valley companies? It, it was called Insight Data Science. So I was, I, it was not associated with a, a university. A friend of mine from uni was like, hey, I was like, what do you reckon I do next? He's like, check this thing out. Um, I, I thought it was a good opportunity to just see more and learn. Wow. Um, so I spent three months in Silicon Valley working with uh, learning about data science and the practices, like translating a lot of the academic skills into practical application. Did and you work for one company or several? Well, as part of this fellowship, you would do a project. Yeah. And then all the companies would come in. So Netflix would come in, Facebook, uh, Airbnb, uh, Reddit. Uh, they'd come in and like, they'd They'd pitch their like biggest data problems, LinkedIn, um, and then you wow, and get you to solve them. And yeah, and they'd be like, "Have a crack." And then it was it was oh, a brilliant. It was a fast. It was an amazing experience. And then you'd have the founders of these companies come in, and then they'd come and they'd go for a beer with you and just tell their story. So sorry, just to digress. So they'd get free, brilliant labor. Uh, yeah, you weren't paid for this by Netflix and Airbnb. So the way that I've, I've kind of done a poor job of explaining, I'll take a step back. So the way the project pro- program works is uh, it's a three-month fellowship. All these technical PhDs apply. Yeah. Uh, and on the other side of the equation, there are lots of like technology companies who, right. sp- who sponsor the fellowship. Yeah. You spend the first half learning a bunch of skills and, and getting to know the companies you work on a project. You then pick a project and you work on a project, with the idea at the end of the at the end of the program, you pick a company you want to work with, and then you effectively get a job there. Yeah, right. So that was their model. Yes. Um, and the reason I did it was I was less interested in getting a job at the end of it. I was just like, this sounds cool. I want to talk to. I want to see what it's like over there. I want to get to meet some of these people. I want to see what these problems are. So I did that fellowship. And then toward the end of it, I came back and started a business. Wow. So during that fellowship, did you suddenly have this light bulb moment? Oh, I'm going to start a, a pocket money app. We were, so Mara and I were talking about the building the business around the start of the fellowship. So it was around the okay, same so time. So you'd had the idea before you got to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I said, look, I've got this fellowship. I'm going to go learn some stuff. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I'll take whatever I learn over there and I can apply it to building a business. So we were talking about the idea prior to me going over and then I came back and then we and we kind of kicked it off at that period of time. Brilliant. So, all right, well, let's digress slightly. What do you think you really took away from that time in Silicon Valley and, and how was it being with those big companies? It was, are, they, are they awesome or are they full of themselves? Are they really super brilliant? 
I think the biggest thing I'd say is like a lot of Aussies have imposter syndrome. Like we're on the other side of the world, you know, everyone's doing all this great stuff, but it's over there and we're here and, you know, they're, they're brilliant. And I think for me personally, it was the biggest takeaway was these are just people doing things, you know, they're, they're, you know, there are some smart people, there are some passionate people, everyone's got, everyone's got strengths, weaknesses, no one has all the answers. And I think for me, being in that environment where it's like, well, you know what, actually, there's some really talented people in Australia. There's some really like what I have learned over the years is really uh, relevant. Um, and there aren't these people on the other side of the world who are just much more talented than us, which is yeah. people trying to do things. I think that was probably a big takeaway. Um, and it was, I also think when you're in a room of very talented people and you're observing very talented people's strengths, uh, it, it, it creates a kind of moment of, introspection where you start to say, well, if that's what they're, what, where are my strengths? And I think um, I found that quite valuable. So you valuable. clarify a lot of things about your, yourself and your own abilities and capabilities. Yeah, I think I, I think the, probably the biggest mistake I've made at many moments in my career, and I, I, it's easy to fall back into this trap, which is you see someone brilliant and you try to be a copy of them, which is like this person is very good at what they do. I'm going to try emulate them, which is always a mistake. I think it's what are the things that make you unique and what are the attributes that you bring to the table and how can you focus on doubling down on those and refining those and, and making those better? And I think that when you're in those environments and there were some very brilliant people there, seeing where they're strong and reflecting on where, not necessarily I'm weak, but where I'm strong and, and how I differentiate, I think that's always a healthy um, exercise to do. And I think that that environment facilitates that. Did you ever uh, think, oh, I'll get one of these companies to back me? You know, if there's a PayPal or a, a bank in there, I'll do it in Silicon Valley? I thought about it. I, 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 love, I love Australia. I think it's a beautiful place to live. I, I think uh, there are a lot of advantages for me being here. Um, you know, I grew up here. I, I know the ecosystem around here better than I would there. I was a bit over solving deep technical problems. And I, I wanted to look at the really the beginning of a journey, which is like, how do I look at where the world's going? What's the world going to look like in five, 10 years? And how do we build something that caters to that world and, and watch it grow as we kind of move through time? And I think that desire, um, it, it's what it, I never really wanted to stick around because I didn't feel like I could achieve that over there. I, I, was, I was more married to that really early stage problem solving. Um, and like, I, lo I love Australia. I think it's a great place to live. And I wanted to build something at home. Here. Yeah. Spriggy, it's a great name. How did you come up with that? Uh, we, uh, so it's, it's a combination of the two words, portmanteau of the two words, spring and piggy. Um, so we, Mara and I, as I said, don't come from marketing or brand backgrounds, uh, but we're like uh, emotional scientists. So I think that's like we both look at brands like Disney where you have um, products and, and movies that cater to both parents and kids. So you have this entertaining journey for, for kids and there's all this nostalgia that's played into, into the narratives and you can have a parent and child go to this experience and they both derive something from it. And what we wanted to do with the brand is is we wanted to have something 
before you even know what we did, it puts a smile on your face. And we wanted to play play to the nostalgia of the piggy bank for the parent, but we also wanted to be fun and energetic for the, the kids. Um, and we looked at energetic words and, and the piggy bank, we kind of came up with a unique word that we wanted it to be unique so it could occupy its own territory that um, played into that space. Um, and that, that was it. Fabulous. So do you come up with the name first? Or had it all been developed as a as an app, and how you're going to run the product, and then think of a name? Oh, uh, I think. I mean, we the process wasn't that sophisticated. Just to just <laughs> maybe throw that out there. I think we um we were just following our feet. I think we we started with uh, the kind of placeholder name Piggy as the like prototype, and that was and and we were like, look, you can change a name, you can change a name much more easily than you can actually. We need to validate whether people actually want a product. Um, so we had this placeholder name for a while. We built a minimum viable product, an MVP, um, which we had about 50 families using. And we, we built that to kind of give ourselves enough confidence that our assumptions about the problems we're trying to solve were validated. Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, how did you think in, this is sort of around 2015 when you started or at least founded the company, How what made you think that, Australia, that families needed this that, and that they were going to be willing to pay you a, a, a yearly fee for it? Uh, well, I think we assumed and hoped, but we didn't, we do, we didn't know. Uh, we, we spoke to a lot of people, not just parents. We spoke to parents, kids, people our age. We were looking at, we were looking at building products that help people make better decisions with money through real-world experiences. And as we continued to ideate and talk to people and learn about the problem space, we we recognized that firstly, you learn about money when you're young, you learn about it from your parents, and there is no safe, simple way for parents to manage money with their kids. So we kind of stumbled across this behavioral problem, which is it's actually really hard managing pocket money with kids. Um, that's kind of the entry point. And then if we can solve these like clunky behavioral problems, we can earn the right to solve these deeper engagement problems. And that was like, that was the thesis at the very beginning. And we're like, but who knows? Like, let's build the smallest thing we can to see if people will use it. And we built, um, the first version of the product was we had prepaid cards. Um, and we built this little web app. Um, so parents could log into this little portal and they'd click buttons to move money around to their kids. And we would actually get an email and then we'd go in and manually move money. And oh, so wow. It was all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And we use that as a vehicle to, just, to try and understand the behaviors and are we onto something? What do we need to learn? And the, and the more we got in front of families, the more we earned the right to kind of learn the next problem. Um, and that kind of first year is where we gained enough confidence to, to kind of tackle a, a, scale pro- a scale product. How did you, so did you actually build the app yourselves? You've got a physicist and a mathematician who's had some computer science in your in your um, bachelor degree, for which you got first class honours and the university medal, I believe. Uh, did you guys build it? Yeah, we built it. Um, we uh, it was actually quite funny. So we 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 wanted to do a fintech product, um, and a lot of the early feedback we got from kind of advisors in our network were. You don't have a guy who's done retail banking, and you don't have anyone who's done tech. So, and you've got no marketing experience. No marketing experience. You haven't ever run a business. You haven't run a business, yeah. You don't know anything about brand. 
don't know anything about brand. You should give the money back. <laughs> we, we got. You should ask. You should ask your old boss for your job back and give the money back. Yeah. So you got a lot of people saying that to you. Yeah, it's it's quite funny. Um, and it was again. Like I so said, what made you push through? It was just first principle thinking. It's I think um, for us uh, the. I think you should always listen to feedback, but you should always contextualize it from where it comes. So we don't have retail banking experience, sure, but Mario and I can figure it out. I think I don't I don't see that as a, a limiting factor. As a barrier. You don't have technology experience, sure, but we're both scientific we're both technically trained. Um, we can figure that out. It does it's not it's not a reason to stop. Um People won't pay for your product. And then you kind of tease underneath why people would say that. They were making these statements based on assumptions or experiences that may or may not be valid. So we always listen to the feedback, um, but understanding the core assumptions that underpinned that feedback, we, we take that on board and we'd either say, look, we should validate that assumption or we just say, look, that's coming from a, a context in which we don't think is relevant. Um, so yeah, we we started. Mario tackled the fin, and I kind of did the tech. That was kind of how we divided and conquered. Um, how did you scale up? Just try and take your mind back to the beginning of that journey. Was it just um, we'll convince you know firstly our family and friends, so maybe ten families, and then you said you had a, a minimum viable product and you put it out to fifty families. How did you then sort of scale up and make it work? So yeah, it started with we were in a co-working space in the city, um, and so we built a little web app which we moved money around in the background. And, and there was a lady called Annabelle there, uh, and she was sitting a few tables away from us. She's lovely, Annabelle's lovely. Uh, and I'd ask Annabelle to if she would use it with the kids. Uh, she'd use it with Charlie and and Sophie and Emily. So we started with Charlie, um, and then we'd write a bit of code, and then we'd go look at see what Annabelle did, and she talked to us. We would take notes, and then we'd write a bit more code, and then we'd take some notes, and then, and then Annabelle really started liking it. She's like, Could I, "I want to tell my friends about it. Can can I, can we get more people on?" So she would tell her friends, and we got um, a bunch of Annabelle's mates on, and then they had feedback, and then a bunch of our kind of friends who had kids, and we ended up getting that organically through our network. Um, so how did we scale up in that first period? Uh, or from that first from period. That period, and then we got to the point where I was like, "Look, this is really hacky. You know, we can't. We're moving. We're moving. We're manually transferring for a lot of families now. This is like this. This concept is it's, it's given us enough confidence to believe that there's something here, but yeah. we can't scale this. Yeah, and and sorry, just for for listeners, you don't manage the money. You don't hold the money. You give that to a um, a properly accredited uh, deposit taking institute institution that looks after the money. That's right. We right. work with third, You're a, a third platform party. and yeah. you yes, third party deposit taker. And so we and and the and the the, the thesis behind that is we want to if we if you go to our office and look at everyone in the room, we want as many of those people as possible focusing on discovering customer problems and solving customer problems. There are experts out there who can hold money and manage yeah. money and we work with them and and we're certainly regulated and we have good compliance and risk frameworks and all the rest of it. But as much of our energy as possible should go towards solving customer problems. And the same way we view our banking partner and infrastructure is the same way we view AWS, who's our our technology provider. They're the experts of building Amazon servers. Web services, yeah. Amazon Web Services, yeah. And so that's not where we play. Okay. Sorry, I um, interrupted you. You were talking sure. about how you did decide to go from just being, look, this is ridiculous as a little hack, um, kind of we're moving the money around physically. 
what was the next big step? So the next step was to find someone who's willing to back us from a banking partner perspective. So we took our you know, what we'd built to date and we went to a number of different potential card partners um, and we kind of pitched them. We said, look, this is a product that people want. This is where the world's going. And um, we'd love to have a, a card partner who can work with us to build the production a production product. And there was a guy called Mark at uh, Inju who uh, he – Inju is our card partner um, and Mark, he he – backed us. He was our champion. And I think we ended up, it was kind of the first of its kind in Australia. Like this technology company doing banking concept hadn't really been done. And Mark, uh, we worked with Mark and Inju were our first backer. And um, I think, you know, you look at people like that along the way, like if Mark didn't believe in us and back us, we, we probably wouldn't be here. And that right. was, and that was, um, you know, that first year was very much, what are we going to build? And then how are we going to build it? And getting that card partner partnership off the ground was very much um, a catalyst to being able to scale. Did you need a lot of funding in that first year before you started to go out and get funding? Uh, and did you extend your own bank accounts? Did you max out the credit card? Did you borrow from the bank of mum and dad? Uh, we, Mara and I, it was just us two. And I'd, I'd been a student with pretty low cost of living. So I was used to the student lifestyle. Um, so we just kind of lived off our savings for that first year, kind of bootstrapped it ourselves. Put it into the business, yeah. yeah. And once we got that card partnership put into the business, um, but we, we it was very efficient that first year. It was We didn't spend that much money because it was just us two. It was, it was just our rent and food. Um, and then once we got the card partnership off the ground, we did an investment round with kind of the they call it the friends, fools, families. That that, that round. Um, so we had family support us, friends who had who know us and had seen us and kind of wanted to back us, and also some kind of entrepreneurs we met along the way who just kind of liked what we were doing. They were, they were drawn to the kind of mission, and they were also drawn to us. They they backed us. And so, how they, much did you raise in that first round? Was that uh, two hundred grand? Oh, two hundred. Um, so that was okay. to hire our yeah. first two engineers. Yeah, um, it wasn't. Uh, you know, I look back and. Na- we were very naive. I think um, there's myself, Mario, and Rob and Jeff, who are our first two engineers. And, and I think between the four of us, we kind of built the product to 20, 30,000 families, um, which is just way too small, knowing what I know now. But we, we it was it was a function of necessity. Um, you then went back. You've had – we'll talk a bit about funding. Um, you In 2017, you raised $2.5 million. Was that the next jump after the two hundred thousand? It was, yeah. Right, and that was um. So in that in that kind of f- once we got the car partnership in that year that followed, we went from taking a hacky prototype um, and building a production banking product, and that was uh, that was tough in the sense that I was. That's kind of where I learned a lot of my engineering. Like I hired some brilliant people who I. I kind of was self-taught and learnt from a number of friends in my network who I pestered. Uh, and then I hired some brilliant engineers who I worked with. And we went from talking to customers every day to flipping it on its head to building a, a banking product that can scale. And that I think that was really difficult because we were very removed from the customer and solving um, very important but isolated problems. Um, and we that was a good part of that next year and then we launched similar to how we did the first probably launched it in a private testing with people where we got to shake out all the problems and iterate on the experience um with the view to launch it to 
to market. And so I think it's actually quite funny. One of the closest periods the business ever came to dying was really around that time where we'd done a lot of, Murray and I had done a lot of planning, which is if we don't get customers, how much runway do we have? Um, so we were pretty pessimistic with our forecasts. Um, and so we were saying, look, we need to get at least this many for us to be able to kind of convince people that there's a viable business here and that we can scale. Um, what we didn't really think through as much was what happens if we grow too fast? Um, and what ended up happening was we grew too fast, which is typically a good problem. But we had like our first contract wasn't a very good contract. So we were actually losing money for every customer who came in. So we so had, you were burning through a lot of money we're burning as through, you were growing. We are burning through our limited money, growing fast. And then as we brought more people on the platform, it required more it just required more of our time. So, and then we, now we have customers, so we have customer support to to look after. So, we built this product, we launched it. It was scaling better than we would have imagined, but that was a challenge because in a very small team where I'm kind of solving bugs on the on the tech side, Mario and I are talking to customers, um, and your runway shortening, finding the space to actually go out and raise the money was difficult, and so. That's that's where we, we we fell on our feet, fortunately. Um, but that period but you there, came close to yeah, falling over completely. Very very close, and it's um. And what was that feeling like? It was weird, and we had we had long conversations about like, is this is this is this viable? What we're doing, and I, I think where we both landed was we're both willing to fail, um, but not because we're growing too fast. That's just that's just that doesn't sound right. So. Um, there was a few sleepless nights there, but it was we fell on our feet, and I think we ra- we raised a bit of extra cash in that period um, to and help what us. What period was this? The two point five million dollars that yeah, we raised. Yeah, so sort of by twenty seventeen. By twenty seventeen. Yeah. yeah, you then raised. Um, I think you know, had a, another capital raising of three point five million, and is that when some of the bigger players came in? ING, Ubank, which is part of NAB I and think, Mike Cannon-Brooks? I think, um, so just on that, ING and Ubank actually aren't investors. Um, I think there's perhaps a article out there somewhere. There is an article out yeah, there. Yeah, so that's not okay. correct. Um, we have- so, so who backed you in that three and a half so million raise? In 2017, in that $2.5 million raise, right. um, we had, the way we structured it was we wanted to have kind of half the round as- former builders or for lack of a better phrase like people who build stuff who can you can pick up the phone and talk to and then the other half of that was um funds so like professional investors uh, we we felt that that shape would give us having the expertise of someone who's like you know how do i hire an, an engineer to solve this problem or you know how do i solve this bespoke marketing problem um all the wacky problems you have yeah. when you're scaling a business um having that network around us and then on the other side of it having funds who are more financially focused to make sure that we build a, a robust business and not just a robust product yeah. uh, and that in that round we had uh, grok ventures which is mike Cannonbrooks's fund come in um we had uh, another fund called allium come in and we had a bunch of high net worth form entrepreneurs come 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 in as well right and then mike Cannonbrooks supported you again in that round in of funding in 2018 Grok Ventures, Mike's Grok, fund, yeah, yep. uh, they have been Mike and Annie's fund. They've they've backed us consi- since then. They've been very supportive. Jeremy, uh, who kind of works in the fund, who leads leads the fund, uh, he he's backed us from early on, and and they've been an 
exceptional influence around the business. I, I was think. going to ask you if you can you share what influence they they do bring or what benefit do they bring? Are they are they very much on the end of the phone? Um, Mike, can you help me think through this? Or is it, no, you have to sort it all out yourselves and I'll just um, be a silent partner? I think with, with their fund, um, the biggest thing they bring to the table is just ambition. Like they, the amount of times you're thinking about something and you, and you chat to someone like Jeremy, which is like, mate, that's tiny, think bigger. And it's really? kind of one of those things where if they hadn't achieved, if like if, if if you know, looking looking at what's been achieved by like Mike and Scott and Atlassian, um, it's not coming from a place of no authority. It's like look, this is this is coming from a place of authority. So I think that it calibrates your ambition. Like they're very patient and think big. And like today I, I work very closely with um a guy called Brian who's you know, was in Atlassian for many years and has just all this experience of how they, how he's built their company, and that's invaluable. Um, and then on the other side, you've got you know the angel investors in that friends and family round who's like, I, I generally I thought I was just giving you money because I just want to help you, and there they're going, well, this is much bigger than we would have thought. So you end up with all these voices around you where some people it's um, have been on the journey with us since the very beginning. Grok have been early in and then we have other backers who have come in more recently who are who look at what we've achieved and say look this is clearly the beginning of something much bigger and so we want to help you get there and i think that universe of influences um but from our entire investor base it's been really positive yeah um, and has that really helped you in your own way of thinking you and mario it helps uh it helps give you perspective at times i think and perhaps confidence to back what you think is a good idea and then to have these other people who've already established incredible businesses say, yeah, go for it. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. And the best the best investors can pattern match. They can look at what's happening and say, okay, I see what's happening here. I've seen this before. Right. This happened in a business I invested in or a business I worked in. And that it's a it's a it's a very invaluable skill where you can present some something to someone. And you've got a problem that you don't have, you've not solved before. And they'll be like, here are the three times I've seen it and this yeah. is how it plays out. And typically you learn pretty quickly to listen to those who have that pattern match experience. Um, pattern match experience, love it. Just a couple of things because I, I, I want to get through a, a lot more. CBA, ComBank, used to have a stranglehold on school banking and starting off with kids, they took savings deposits, they had the the great, um, you know, little piggy banks, as, as you were talking about the early days of your name, they ended up copying a fair bit of flack. I mean, many decades on, you've kind of moved on and you've made that sort of essential product so much better. Is that the way you think or did you not sort of think about what CBA had done through schools? I think so. I, I think my view is the more people trying to build solutions to problems in this space, the better. So I, I'm not really, this is my personal philosophy, I don't like kind of bashing people on, on the outside. Like there's enough, there's, this is such an important problem that the more people paying attention to it, to it the better. Uh, I think that- And you mean the problem of kids not understanding money and they can get into problems uh, very quickly? Absolutely. Well, the number one cause people. of depression and anxiety in 18 to 35 year olds is financial stress. 
like we Australia's a cracking country. Like why are we having and, and we're an affluent country. Why are we having that? That just doesn't need to be the case. And I think that um, giving people the opportunity to learn, giving kids the opportunity to learn through money via real-world experiences, I think the more people doing that, the better. I think like CBA Solution, they're, they're a large institution who have been around for a very long time. Um, and the requirements of building products in that space have changed. They're digital. They're digital first. They're mobile first. Uh, I don't... I think for us, we weren't that focused on what CBA are doing. We were just focused on where is the world going? What do our customers need? And how do we solve customer problems? I think the biggest mistakes com- companies make all the time is they listen to all the noise that's happening in and around their business or in and around their customer. And they ignore the the one person who actually they should be listening to. Um, so we, it's a discipline, but we need to put the blinkers on and, and focus on the pain points that our customers, are, they're not just like, telling us they're very vocally saying like here are the things we need help with and the more we do that the better we'll be alex bedron that sounds like a great spot to take a little break will you uh, join me for part two of our chat yeah, absolutely Helen. we'll be back In part two of our chat next time, Alex Badron talks of the substantial challenges in achieving scale in Spriggy, how not to go broke, and the fundamental importance, he believes, of children learning about money and debt in the digital world and language they live in. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.